independent artists and their teams um, are really expected to do a lot of the heavy lifting mm-hmm. based on the system we have set up today. Um, as far as making sure that they are getting paid for their work yeah. um, and figuring out their own problems with these with these platforms, because the platforms do have to maintain neutrality whenever there's a dispute that comes up. And mm-hmm. um, it puts the onus on an independent artist. And as we both know, like there's more and more indie artists every single year. Like that's yep. the bulk of the industry. Yep. People are taking this as like a learning lesson mm. of how to protect yourself a little bit better. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure some people are hoping for systemic change in different ways uh, to the digital royalties system. But yes. uh, I think the immediate that there are a lot more managers, artists, songwriters, et cetera, that are checking. This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a distribution service that can get your music into all the DSPs like Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram. Over a million artists have used DistroKid. I'm one of those artists. I've used DistroKid to get my music out, distribute some of my songs. As you know, as I look into all of these distribution services, I test them out. And DistroKid is great. They offer a ton of features annual fee, unlimited uploads, and you keep 100% of your royalties. Check out districtkid.com. What's going on? Welcome to the New Music Business. I'm your host, Ari Herstand, author of How to Make It in the New Music Business, the book, Third edition coming very soon. Today, my guest is Kristen Robinson. She is an investigative journalist for Billboard, and I invited her on the show to talk about her incredible piece, very in-depth investigative report entitled, How Did Two Unknown Latin Music Operators Make $23 Million from YouTube? The IRS says they stole it. She spent a long time working on this piece and details how, uh, unfortunately, how easy it is for uh, malicious parties to steal other artists and songwriters' money from YouTube royalties. Now, we actually break down how broken this system is, and even if the parties aren't acting maliciously, how money gets, uh, I should say, reallocated or allocated incorrectly, uh, mistakenly or otherwise to parties that don't deserve this money from YouTube. But also, this is a case that she uncovered where these parties were acting maliciously and ran this Very successful scam for a while until they got caught. So Kristen breaks down this story, but I encourage everybody to read this incredible article. Um, It's on Billboard now, and you can learn more about that over on Billboard. Just search for that article. We're going to link it in the show notes as well. We also dive deep into copyright and registration and royalties and the importance of indie artists understanding how all this works and the importance of indie artists and songwriters properly registering their works across all platforms. So this is why I work so hard and everybody that in, on the Ari's Take team works so hard to help educate the community and make sure that we know how all of the royalties work and how you should register your stuff. So make sure, which brings me to, make sure you are on the Ari's Take email list because we send out helpful articles and resources all the time. Just head over to ariestake.com, get on that email list. That's where you're gonna find the most up-to-date information and where we'll send all the resources uh, about all of this kind of stuff. You can find Kristen Robinson on Instagram and Twitter at Words by Kristen. You can find all of us that make the show happen at Ari's Take on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. You can find me at Ari Herstan on Instagram and Twitter. Please pause this right now and click the subscribe or follow button, however you're listening to us right now. Follow us so you'll get us in your feed as we release more episodes. And leave us a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those really help. And I do need to say that I had some audio issues during this episode, so the audio quality isn't quite up to the Ari's Take new music business standards, but it is audible, and you're going to have just a fine time listening to this episode, but it will sound a little bit different than the other episodes, and that's why. 
All right, let's kick into the show. Kristen Robinson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So excited to be here. Yeah, so uh, we're here to talk about your incredible investigative report that you did for Billboard. Uh, this is one of the most. Um, this was one of the most engaging pieces that I've read in a very long time. Uh, my jaw just kept dropping further and further to the <laughs> ground. <laughs> the way it is, it's just like it went deeper and deeper. And there was like a jewelry thing happening. And there was a <laughs> houses being bought with all this crazy money. There was like, there's a lime green Lamborghini being driven around with these, <laughs> with these butterfly doors. I'm just like, oh my gosh, it was crazy. I felt like I was watching a TV show or reading an incredible no mystery novel. Um, yeah. So uh, I want to break this down a little bit. And I want you to talk about uh, the story. First off, I'm going to read the headline uh, yeah. because, uh, well, there's a great headline. <laughs> How did two unknown Latin music operators make $23 million from YouTube? The IRS says they stole it. Well, yeah. as a as someone who has written headlines uh, professionally for the last 10 years, that is a great <laughs> headline. That would get anyone to read it. Yeah, and, uh, It got me to read it, and then it didn't get me to stop reading it until I finished it an hour later, because it is a deep, very in-depth, in-depth piece. Um, mm -hmm. So first off, can you just summarize, just break down, give us the give us the bullet points of, of what happened here? What's what's going on with this? Yeah, yeah. So um, this story is a, uh, based on a lot of court documents that I've read and interviews I've had with sources in the industry that were aligned or adjacent to this scam. Um, and basically, uh, what the IRS is alleging is that uh, this company called Media Move which was founded by two guys, uh, both of them living out of Phoenix, that they had devised a YouTube royalty scam and ended up stealing $23 million worth of royalties from songwriters and artists who had their music on YouTube but weren't properly claiming it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it left them kind of susceptible to a fraud like this. And this goes all the way up to gigantic acts uh, like Daddy Yankee, um, Anuel Aa, I think that's how you pronounce it. Sorry, okay. people who speak Spanish, if that was wrong. Um, but like tons of very important Latin music artists. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, it, it was a very interesting story to research. My jaw was dropping as I was researching it. Um, but, <laughs> you know, there's a, it, it raises a lot of interesting questions, I think, about mm -hmm. how um, digital royalties work in general, yes. and especially yes. how they work on YouTube. And um, especially for those independent artists out there, which I know a lot of them listen to a lot of your work. Mm -hmm. um, are you safe online? Like, have you actually done all the checks that are necessary to make sure that your music is being properly monetized? So, mm -hmm. Well, and and um, thank you. That's a great summary. And we are going to get into, I'm excited to get into your process in writing this story, but I want to I want to hit that later. First off, uh, let's dig a little bit deeper into the nuts and bolts of what happened here. Uh, we have an informed uh, listenership here. I think we can get into the weeds of uh, what went down a little bit more um, because I, I correct me if I'm wrong. It does have a little bit to do with with properly registering, but also it even has more to do with uh, these two these scammers, mm -hmm. this Media Move company, um, via their uh, YouTube, I guess, content ID uh, administrator, I guess, collections agency, whatever you want to call it, AdRev. Um, they falsely claimed that they um represented or, or co-owned some of these um these uh recordings and and songs rather because like i think you mentioned in your piece a little bit how especially in songs with multiple co-writers that entails multiple publishers it's oftentimes hard to know if everything is being properly registered or claimed. And even as a publisher, it's like, oh yeah, there were five songwriters on this. So there's you know five other yeah. four other publishers or something like that. So it might even get missed that I mean, yeah. these people were were flat out illegally scamming this. Uh, so break all this down a little bit, and we'll we'll go into how like this can be done maliciously, like how Media Move did it, mm -hmm. but also how it can be done um, 
not necessarily maliciously, mm-hmm. but also uh, just kind of accidental. Accidentally, right? Because the system is broken. We'll talk about that later. But but talk about the this first bit a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so how this uh, alleged scam was facilitated? Um, so Media Move, which was really an unknown entity, I don't think that they really had an online presence. They had kind of a a random website that they threw up at one point and like a, a little bit of a Facebook page, but it didn't, you know, they didn't really have firm operations, but somehow they ended up getting access to YouTube's content management system or CMS. Um, you also might hear it being called content manager um, within this, uh, another tool that's very popular that people talk about a lot is content ID, um, which is specific to sound recordings. But basically if you have access to content manager, then you have the ability to make sure that you are claiming your songs properly. You can see the splits um, Mm -hmm. behind the scenes. If you're um, representing songwriters, you can check and make sure that your songwriters have their correct splits inputted. Um, Sound recordings, same thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But not everyone has access to this. Um, I I was certainly a little surprised that these guys, um, because they didn't have a high profile in the industry already, were able to get access to CMS, but I'm not, I'm actually not sure what uh, went into that part, but mm-hmm. they had access to CMS and started to claim, uh, they ultimately claimed over 50,000 different sound recordings and compositions mm. on YouTube saying that they were the rights holders. So like whether that meant that they were the label or they bought these catalogs or they were the managers, they, they were kind of acting like they were on these artists and songwriters teams. Um, wow and to help them collect this money because it is a very tedious process Mm -hmm. uh, to collect on that many copyrights. Mm -hmm. They entered a contract with AdRev, um, which is a rights management company. It's owned by Downtown Music Holdings. Mm -hmm. Um, During the majority of the scheme, uh, that process had like a downtown didn't own that company, but they, they bought the company, I believe in 2019. Yeah. The with the, the uh, CD baby acquisition, uh, CD yes. baby used to own, um, ad rev and they were yeah. kind of, so when downtown bought CD baby and all of the other mm-hmm. com- entities that they were part of it. Yeah. That that's when they acquired yeah. it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a Russian doll situation. It's like right. there's ad rev <laughs> and then there's CD baby and then there's downtown. Yeah. Um, but yeah, song so trust they, is in there somewhere. Song <laughs> trust is in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, yeah, they signed a contract with AdRev, which is one of the largest rights managers that has expertise with YouTube collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and they started collecting um, these royalties for media move. Um, so- and so sorry, yeah. I, I just want to pause right there just to just to explain uh, the ad rev model a little bit for people that aren't really familiar because it is a web and it is very extremely confusing. And as someone who studies this for a living, I'm still unraveling it and trying to understand how all this works. Um, so break down a little bit um, what ad rev does kind of specifically and how they operate as as these administrators. Yeah, so these administrators are very important to the YouTube ecosystem. There's a ton of them. Um, if you look up, like YouTube has a lot of different pages for creators to educate themselves that they're oftentimes using YouTube. And one of the pages that they offer is like a services directory listing a bunch of these types of companies. Mm. And basically what these companies do is uh, they have CMS access and they have okay. a team of people that understand how the YouTube system works. So if you're a business that's smaller or if you're, um, you know, a singular songwriter or a singular artist and you're looking to make sure that on YouTube everything is in line and that you're going to be collecting properly, um, a lot of people will recommend that you sign on to one of these rights managers like AdRev. Mm-hmm. And they will they will collect the money for you and make sure that no one's um, claiming your songs for you. and. Um, in turn, they take a fee of anywhere between 10% of the royalties they bring in for you up to, I think, about 25. It really is a wide range. It depends on who you are, what kind of leverage you have as to what mm-hmm. kind of deal you would get with the rights manager. Um, but they're important to YouTube because YouTube wants to keep CMS and 
their content ID tools gated. They, they don't want everyone to see everything because mm. I think, I think the logic with that, I believe is that if maybe if everyone had access, then people would abuse the system. So they want to keep it to trusted partners. But uh, what's unfortunate here is that it, it ended up being that media move uh, was not a very trustworthy entity. Um, so anyways, that's that's kind of like the gist of why you would sign with a rights manager. So to illustrate this a little bit, um, I'll use myself as an example. So uh, if I'm, you know, I'm a songwriter, artist, if there are, uh, are people out there that are covering my song, um, they're uploading cover videos to YouTube of my song. Let's say there's thousands of artists out there, uh, you know, creators uploading covers to my composition. I could enlist a company like AdRev uh, to go collect um, the basically to, to add rep could tell YouTube slap some ads on these videos because they contain my composition. And then ad rep is kind of acting as my administrator um, to then, so I could get paid some, some revenue from the ad revenue because these videos use my composition because they're covering my song. Is that, is that correct? Yes. I mean, I, I don't know what the threshold is. There is a threshold for how many views a, a video has to get before you can monetize it. Um, but if you have like quite a few different, very popular covers, I believe that that, that would be the process for that. Mm -hmm. um, with, with covers specifically as, as a songwriter, and you have maybe a really popular song out there that everyone's playing themselves, yep. um, covers are really difficult to track because the content ID system for YouTube is really good at identifying sound recordings that match, okay. but it's, it's way harder for it to match up, you know, amateur cover artists sure. uh, with your composition. So mm -hmm. I think that like having an extra team behind you that can check up on everything and make sure that they're actually catching those covers that are slipping through the cracks probably because right. um, they are sufficiently different. Um, and claiming those for you is mm -hmm. can be very important for a songwriter's revenue. So in addition to, so what uh, Content ID specializes in kind of on the other side of the other copyright that we're talking about. So yeah. I just referenced and illustrated the composition copyright. Um, yeah. Now, when we're talking about the sound recording copyright, um, that's a lot easier because YouTube's Content ID system, it's essentially like, you know, a Shazam or like kind of just like a, you know, sonic recognition mm -hmm. software that they have where they crawl every video. Actually, I think, you know, before it actually gets uh, published there, it goes through their content ID system. And if it's a recording, like, you know, if I were to upload a video using um, a Beyonce track that would get caught immediately. Um, and, yeah. and Beyonce's uh, label um, via whoever is running their content ID, um, their label, could basically has the option to either monetize it, slap an ad on it saying, we, we mm -hmm. want to earn from this um, or uh, take it down. And they could say, you know what? We don't want any videos with this sound recording and we're, we're just going to ask you to take it out. And I, I believe the content, uh, I believe the um, YouTube gives you that option through content ideas. Like what, which, what do you want to do when we spot one of these uh, recordings? Is that, is that right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm honestly not super familiar with the process of uploading uh, a video that has a sound recording in it, but I believe that's correct. Um, I do. Yep. I feel like you oftentimes see people trying to upload videos and having them flagged or held back because yep. they contain copyrighted material. So I believe that's correct. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, um, you know, that happens all the time. And so I, I want to get to that in a little bit too on um, where where it's happening accidentally because I have personal experience with this and I'll and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But I want to continue on uh, this story. So um, so media move these two guys. Uh, they um, somehow have now. This is where I guess I was a little confused. You're saying that they had they got access to content manager YouTube's content manager before they were working with, with AdRev, or they got access to it because AdRev gave them the access. Uh, no, they they ended up getting access independently of AdRev, but wow. I I believe the reason uh, there there's no um, there there's nothing that says exactly why they decided that they would still pair with AdRev 
having that access themselves. But I, I believe that this system is quite tricky. And I think yeah. that that would make a lot of sense still um, to want to partner with the rights manager to ensure that um, you don't have to do all the legwork. Um, right. So, and AdRev is like, has been a trusted partner of YouTube's for a very long time. So I bet they have Got like it. a stronger rapport with the YouTube reps there. And that makes like sense. That. Well, now um, this is so interesting. So you said they, Media Move claimed that they represented around 50,000 copyrights, yeah. both yeah. sound recording and composition copyrights in, in some capacity. Um, and so what, was starting to happen uh was that uh well i guess let me ask you how did yeah. this come to light how how mm. did anyone discover what they were doing and and how did they get caught because you they got caught you were able to write the story yeah yeah they did get caught <laughs> i um it, it really started very grassroots. I think it was just a lot in the very beginning, um, which was around 2017 when they started claiming uh, songs and recordings. It was a lot of people that just started noticing on the bottom of their videos that there's something called Media Move that was claiming their royalties. Um, mm. And so people started making, ironically, YouTube videos being like, I think these guys are fraudsters. I think they're <laughs> stealing from me. Or wow. like, who is Media Move? Why are they claiming my song? This is not yeah. theirs. Mm. Um, there was a, a Twitter account that was set up and it's still running. If anyone wants to follow it, it, it was a great source of information for me too. Um, it it's called fuck media move <laughs> so, <laughs> straight cool. into the point there. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, so, th so there was that, there was also a Facebook page where people kind of just gathered to like commiserate about their videos being claimed, um, mm. and their songs being claimed by wow. media move. And unfortunately I don't think that it really led to much except for the fact that these people were just upset and trying to find ways to get their music back um mm. additionally there was another rights manager who spoke with me extensively and shared a lot of emails with me um who had a lot of his uh the artists and other rights holders that actually work with him mm. uh, that were being claimed by media move and so he did a lot of work trying to connect with ad rev and be like, I need to get these songs back. These are actually my artist songs. Right. Um, and you know, that took place a lot in 2018. Um, mm. that's when that, that guy's, um, works are being claimed a lot and sure. they went back and forth quite a bit. And it, you know, I, I think he said that it was quote hundreds of incorrect wow. claims, mm. um, for his rights holders. So, um, uh, pretty crazy. I mean, yeah. And this is, I'm assuming the, the pseudonym Gabriel that you reference in the piece yeah. so much. Um, and, uh, now did all of I'm, well, this gets into the kind of the, the, um, how you wrote this and, and while you're writing this, um, how did you decide and where and why did you decide that some people would get pseudonyms and some people, cause you named names i mean you named yeah. you know like noah becker from uh you know co-founder yeah. of adrev who then had to resign and it's no longer and then you wrote a follow-up piece saying like he's now out from the company and like you know you you did name some names um yeah. even the father of the serial killer who's on trial for you know or something like that i think yeah. i got that right i'm just like man, you got some guts, right? Like naming some yeah. of these things. I was like, oh, I, I don't know if I would like go that far. But so yeah, who who did you decide? How, where did you draw the line of who's going to get a name and who you would use as an anonymous source? Um, so a lot of my information for this story was from court documents where these names were okay. listed. So these court gotcha. documents are publicly available. There were a lot to sort through and yeah. it takes a lot of time and um, effort to go through all of them. So most people have not done that. Um, but within those, uh, most of the names that were listed in the story were already publicly available and tied to this case. Gotcha. Um, as far as like some of my sources that, uh, they, they would request a pseudonym from me. Okay. Um, and so they would, they would tell me, um, I'll speak to you. I have valuable information, but I need to remain anonymous for my safety or for the yep 
the safety of my business. Um, And I, I really do think that people don't talk enough about how brave it is to be a source for a controversial story. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, uh, like Gabriel, for example, this is his livelihood and, yeah. um, he, he really put himself on the line and had to trust me that I was going to, uh, you know, uphold my end of the bargain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he was willing to share a lot of personal company emails with me, um, which really helped, um, lock down a lot of different facts, um, for me, which is so helpful. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so basically, if if a source is asking and requesting anonymity, um, we I mean, it's it's likely that they will get that. I've never had mm-hmm. an instance where an editor has told me that we're not allowed to give someone anonymity. Um, sure. But I think that for a journalist, it is very sacred. If someone says this conversation is off the record or this conversation, I need to remain anonymous, but you can quote me that we honor that because. Yeah. If you don't do that, I mean, just as a human being, that's just, that's cruel and uh, a betrayal of trust, but that, I, I think that's pretty unethical as a journalist as well. Um, sure. So that's why certain people had pseudonyms and other people were named. Yeah, that's great. Um, no, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, very, very well-researched, uh, well-investigated and, um, you know, very ethically done. How long did it take you to, to do this story? <laughs> it took a long time. <laughs> yeah, it seems that way. Uh, so honestly, the full journey of the story before the story was even a story uh, started like September of 2021. I did okay. a call uh, just to get to know, I do a lot of get to know you calls with various people just to like learn more about what they do and mm-hmm. make new friends. And I did a call with someone who works in a, a different rights management company. And he was like, you know, you should do a story on about uh, the rights management space and about how often people get scammed on YouTube. And I had never heard of that before in my life. And mm-hmm. I, I understand that like sometimes money is routed to the wrong person from a streaming service or something, but I didn't really understand how um, YouTube was a unique platform and it required unique skills and that there's this whole cottage industry of YouTube rights management. And um he kind of introduced that to me and he even walked me through some songs on the billboard hot 100 that he suspected had been misclaimed. Um, and whether that was by accident or a a true scam, it's hard to tell, but, um, it blew my mind. And I remember writing an email to like everyone that I was working with and I had just gotten to billboard at this point. So it was like two months. Was this, was this Jeff price? Uh, no, it was not. Okay, it was okay. not. But he, he did this to me like eight years ago, and he showed me that. And I was like, yeah, I know you quoted him in your story. Also, I was like, okay, he knows it. But yeah. anyway, continue. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't Jeff, but um, Jeff is a, a very smart guy uh, mm-hmm. and is always looking to challenge and push the industry. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so this the source didn't end up being a part of the story later, but okay. the stuff that they told me just really sparked my curiosity in it. And so mm-hmm. I just started learning more about this space. Um, and all my editors knew that I was like really, really fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually uh, someone else at Billboard got uh, sent the indictment against the, the two co-founders of Media Move. And they were like, you, you guys should cover this. Like, I'm willing to be a source if you want to look into it. And uh, it was actually uh, Gabriel um, okay. who yep. ended up mentioned in the story. And uh, that editor remembered that I had been going on and on about how fascinating the world of YouTube royalties is and sent it over to me. And um, it was a slow start. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have plenty of things that I'm working on all at once, but mm-hmm. I just kind of kept chipping away at it. And then... Um, one of the two co-founders of Media Move, um, for those who haven't read the story, uh, they ended up pleading guilty in late April of that's 2022. Right. And so that's kind of when the floodgates opened to me. I w- had been doing a lot of research, especially like at night or on weekends, because I had a full plate of other stories. Sure. Um, and when the plea deal came out that had... Um, Webster Batista, one of the two co-founders of Media Move, saying explicitly, I stole $23 million of YouTube royalties. And 
like hearing from his own words that it wasn't just an indictment. It's not just the IRS accusing them. There's one of the two guys who's willing to admit that that happened. Um, it it really led to uh, me diving completely in. I, I don't know if you've seen that that meme of like, it's always sunny and it's the, it's the big board with all the yarn and all the photos. It's like this conspiracy theory guy and he like looks <laughs> yeah. like he's going insane. That's kind of like where I got to. <laughs> and I was like, I'm all alone in this. I was oh diving gosh. so deep into it. And I was finding all of these you know, adjacent people uh, like Webster's wife and um, Webster's new girlfriend. There's seemingly a financial possible link between certain people that were around these guys that were never included in the indictment, but wow. were included in other court documents that no one had found before, but they're out there. It's just, wow. you have to know. Anyways, I felt like I was going crazy. Uh, <laughs> but luckily, I, I, and there were definitely points where I didn't know if it would all come together, but um, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to weave together um, a lot of the story, but you know, to do something like this, I, I take the responsibility of saying anything that, is not super glowing about someone in the press very seriously. And it mm -hmm. takes a lot of corroboration. You uh, you can't just take someone's word for it. Mm -hmm. You have to do a lot of digging, get a lot of, you know, emails, court documents, all these like very definite um, sourcing uh, to yeah. make sure that the story is solid. And um, I'm, I'm grateful that I, I was able to put it together. Um, What's the, I'm curious, you know, as I uh, dabbled in, I guess, you know, journalism a bit and, and have written for various publications and, and all of this and have, of course, the blog, Ari's take. Um, what was the process? Uh, did you have an editor that you were working alongside or were you kind of left to your own devices and then presented kind of the first draft with your sources and then went from there? Or do you have the keys to their back end and they're just like go for it we trust you and you just published and the first time they read it was oh, when no. it was public okay, oh no, no. <laughs> i uh, definitely had a lot of editing and um i really think it takes the village um i have such a deep respect um I, i'm still like towards the beginning of my career i've been at billboard mm -hmm. for a little over a year now and okay. um before that i worked for a record label so i'm fairly mm -hmm. fairly new in the game at journalism um, and I didn't really realize until I went through this process and the process of one other story that I worked on that was quite intensive about six months ago, that um, it requires um, a village to present a story that's investigative. Um, mm -hmm. And so now when I read other stories that are really deep dives, I, I just think about all the hours that yeah. the writer, their editor, their sources all put in mm -hmm. um, to making it happen. And that's that's what, not to get a soapbox about journalism, but that's why it's so important. Like the yeah. Harvey Weinstein article, I think about that one all the time. Oh yeah, that must have taken so many hours. And oh my gosh, I'm yeah. very grateful that that writer was willing to spend the time to do that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so for for this story, I had a couple editors that were really, um, you know, championing the story. Uh, they. Mm -hmm knew that I was passionate about about it and willing to give me time to work on it um, and were willing to take my bizarre phone calls where I was telling them about all the weird <laughs> things that I had found, the Lamborghini photo right. and, you know, like yeah. the diamond chains and all this stuff. And um, I feel very grateful to be supported at Billboard. But there, I would say there were quite a few editors that took a look Mm. Um, and we also, uh, went through it with a lawyer, um, to make sure that everything was sound and, cool. um, but yeah, it, it was a long process. That's awesome. Uh, that's, that's really illuminating and, and, um, really cool to hear the, the process of, of how it went about it. And it, and it's nice to hear that there were many checks along the way. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I've been in situations in the past where I have done investigative stories, that got published, but there was no real editorial oversight and it was Ooh. really all me and it was all on me. And I, you know, and, and that's the other thing is just like, at least when you have a team, they back you up and you're kind of in it together. And like, when mm -hmm. you hit, when somebody hits publish, it's like, okay, it's now on everyone, not just your own ass. It's like everyone's mm -hmm. ass is on the line and it's billboards where it's like, in the past, I've I've done uh, similar stories where it was just like, well, it's all me, and I've gotten you know mm. lawsuit threats, I've gotten death threats, I've gotten you know all of that which comes yeah. along with this, which is like I I know, you know, a little bit of kind of uh, what 
potentially could go through. Have you gotten any blowback from the people named in this in this article at all? Real quick, I want to let you know about DistroKid. Well, I'm sure you already know about DistroKid, but they are partners with Ari's Take, and they are a great company that can help get your music distributed to Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all of that. Over a million artists use DistroKid. I'm one of those artists. I have distributed some of my music in the past. And something I appreciate about DistroKid as not just an artist, but someone who studies this space is they have been one of the most innovative companies over the last 10 years. They came in and completely changed the game. One of the first companies offering unlimited uploads, and now most of the other distributors have had to change their policies to kind of copy and follow suit uh, what DistroKid was doing, and the industry had changed, of course. DistroKid doesn't keep a commission. That means you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings from the DSPs. They also offer payment splitting. They call it splits, something that, for me, at this point, is a deal breaker. I don't want to have to cut checks to all my collaborators and the producers and everybody else that is owed royalties and owed splits from my earnings. DistroKid will cut those checks directly. You can get them to uh, your collaborators to sign up, and then DistroKid will cut all the checks to all your collaborators. And they were one of the first to offer that of the DIY self-service distributors. DistroKid continues to innovate. Check them out. If you need to get your music out there, districtkid.com. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say people who are named are especially happy about it, but <laughs> I, I, I truly, I, nothing that was disrespectful has happened. I, I honestly was prepared, uh, even maybe, uh, I, this happens to journalists, which you alluded to, like just doxing or like, death mm. threats. I've actually not gotten any of that. Um, and I'm grateful <laughs> that yep. that has not happened. Um, but you know, I've also gotten a lot of really positive feedback, um, mm-hmm. from lots of people in the industry. I, you know, lo- lots of people sending me DMS and stuff saying that, you know, for the first time they checked to make sure that their artist was, taken care of on YouTube and realized that a couple of their songs weren't and it wasn't malicious, but they um, just didn't realize that they needed to check on that. Mm. And I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that that's been a lot of the feedback that I've gotten that people are taking this as like a learning lesson Mm. of how to protect yourself a little bit better. Um, You know, I'm I'm sure some people are hoping for systemic change in different ways uh, to the digital royalties system but uh, i think the immediate that there are a lot more managers artists songwriters etc that are checking is huge so it's so necessary and this is what i was alluding to before which i'll i'll talk about now a little bit um you know i uh discovered part of this problem firsthand about a year ago um when i uploaded a um a live from the studio video to youtube on our own channel of my funk project brassroots district and we had recorded live from the studio song of uh, a song that i wrote by myself 100 um and we recorded it in live in studio there's no samples there's no other recordings out there this was literally created on the spot uploaded um instantly it got uh, i'll share my screen and it, those of you who are watching on youtube you'll see it instantly it got uh claimed by Latin author, Latin author Perf, Song Trust, yeah. UMPG Publishing, that's Universal Music Publishing Group, uh, Cobalt, and Concord Music Publishing. What? Now, oh, that's crazy. instantly. So, hi, wow. Brassroots District. The following claim on this was instant. And I'm like, okay, one, it's all bullshit because I wrote the song by myself. I've registered the copyright. I've registered it with, you know, I, I am with song trust. So this was, this was accurate. Song trust okay. was the only one that should have been claimed it, but not Latin author, not Latin author, Latin author, perv. definitely not yeah. universal, definitely not cobalt or Concord. Um, and it is our own recording. So it's like, there's, you know, there's no one that could even possibly mm. claim it. We had used any of their samples or anything like this. So, I, you know, this is my article. If people want to look it up, it's uh, YouTube content ID is a scam. Uh, I wrote this in June of 2021. It's a, and I kind of go into um, a lot of these mechanisms because here's the thing. It's um, 
well, for one, just to continue this, I Mm -hmm. know better and I know that I own all these rights and no one should be claiming this and making money off of my intellectual property or my video. So you, I disputed the claim and that's what every artist should do. If you get a claim, a false claim on your video, um, you dispute it. And they, you know, uh, they have 30 days, the people that made the claim uh, to release it um, or they can actually uh, submit a takedown notice um, or reinstate it, which that that goes in even deeper to the issues surrounding a lot of this uh, rights management, because, uh, you know, fortunately, nobody fought me on it. They would have lost. They released their mm-hmm. claims. And, you know, now I, I you know, have all of the revenue that ads are generating coming to me. But mm. most artists don't know to do that. Most artists, yes. frankly, are terrified that they're going to do something wrong and get a copyright strike because we know the law says the law from 1998 that for some dumb reason has not been updated yet that there's a three strike rule and if you get three strikes they are required to rip your account down so if you get three strikes on your youtube uh, account youtube will just remove your profile this is now happening um uh, across the board. Now, uh, I don't know if you read Elias Light's um, story on, uh, on he, he called it, artists are leveraging false infringement claims against rivals. This is, uh, he wrote this in July or published it in July on Billboard. Um, and basically what's happening there, which is really fucked up, is that uh, artists who, well, people in general are essentially issuing takedown notices, copyright claims against other artists, rightly or wrongly, saying that, oh, this is, um, I own this copyright. And um, platforms like Spotify um, and YouTube and others are, and Instagram, uh, essentially are, we'll just take it down. We'll, We'll strike it and they'll say like, take this down. And that's because they're like, I'm the copyright owner and you need to take this down. Now, the problem is these platforms are hands off. They're like, oh, OK, I'm not going to investigate this at all. I don't I, I don't want to get, you know, yeah, they got to be neutral. Yeah, they have to be neutral. They don't, they don't take sides in these kind of disputes, which is fucked up because here's what's happening, because um art. Well, anyone and I, you know, it's it, this needs to be out there. But anyone can literally go to any of these platforms and say, I own that, take it down. And and the platforms will oblige if, you know, it's not the 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 song is not like by a major label artist or by a major publisher who have the backing and the lawyers and the infrastructure to fight this. They just take it down. So actually, I've been hearing a lot about this. And, and Kristen, I might have your next story for you. Um, <laughs> because, Give me more um, work. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's been two cases that I heard about that that are really heartbreaking. Um, mm-hmm. One of them, both from indie artists. Um, one of them is a friend of mine. Um, he's the artist, Matt B., um, R&B artist. He recorded this um, music video. He went over to Nigeria, uh, recorded this kind of um, R&B Afrobeats song with a very large Nigerian artist. Uh, it was co-written uh, by a few people and they invested a ton of money, their own money, his own money, totally indie artists into this video. They uh, distributed the song, uploaded the video uh, with this featured famous Nigerian artist. And within two days, got 20,000 views. It's starting to go. And then somebody issues a copyright claim. It was um, kind of a, an artist that's in the scene that they have a little beef with. And he felt a little, um, apparently this artist felt miffed that Matt got this famous Nigerian artist recording his track and not his. And so he's like, hey, I own this and uh, you got to take it down. So wow. YouTube like, and Spotify and Apple, everybody took it down. He issued the copyright wow. claim to everyone. And so they essentially lost you know, tens of thousands of dollars that they invested in this track and the momentum. That's the mm. other thing. Is the momentum like, is huge. It really is. It could take really months huge. to get back reinstated. It's now been two or three months. It still has not been reinstated, but the momentum's done. It's gone. You know, all the press, they got a ton of press around it when it opened up. So that's a problem that has not been solved yet. But here's another one that's even more fucked up. Um, I'm not going to use her name because she didn't um, want me to speak in a <laughs> sources. Yeah. You want me to get this out there. Um, but 
basically this artist, uh, she, uh, indie artist, full-time artist, uh, you know, makes a, a good living as a, as a musician, as an indie artist. Um, she did a photo shoot with a photographer and, uh, this uh they have a text and email correspondence saying you know i'm going to pay you for the photos you're going to give me permission to use them on my instagram it's very yeah. clear yeah. um she posts the photos no problem whatever they still talking he makes a pass at her he wants her to reciprocate that she doesn't because she won't sleep with them or, or reciprocate the pass he now goes to instagram and says hey i own all these photos take them down she doesn't have permission for me to use them and wow. guess what Instagram does? Instagram bans her, takes her account down. She's, oh, yeah, it's gone. And now she has appealed this. It's been two months. She can't get it back. And Instagram is also hands off. They're wow. just like, well, you guys got to work it out. And now yeah. this is and so this is like her essentially her abuser that is now mm. falsely claiming this. And I've been hearing this actually more and more. Um, and another artist came to me and was like, my ex-girlfriend just went in and, and uh, claimed all of these uh, photos and videos on my Instagram. And now I'm banned from Instagram. Mm. So this is happening more in like as an artist right now, you know, Instagram is their lifeblood. Yeah. Like the way that they communicate with their fans and they've spent years building up this audience and this fan base. Totally. And now Instagram or YouTube or Spotify just is like, hands off, y'all work it out. And it's a really scary place right now for an indie artist when anybody can go and do that. That's interesting. I've never heard of people like trying to do it out of spite. I've heard so many instances of uh, metadata errors where, you know, certain things might have gotten confused in a system and someone mm -hmm. accidentally claimed a song or something that's like intentionally malicious, um, mm -hmm. but not usually like a rival or an abuser that, but that, that raises interesting questions. Um, I think, I think what it, uh, a lot of this comes back to is independent artists and their teams, um, are really expected to do a lot of the heavy lifting mm -hmm. based on the system we have set up today. Um, as far as making sure that they are getting paid for their work, yeah. um, and, figuring out their own problems with these, with these platforms, because the platforms do have to maintain neutrality whenever there's a dispute that comes up and mm -hmm. um, it puts the onus on an, an independent artist. And as we both know, like there's more and more indie artists every single year, like that's yep. the bulk of the industry. I don't know if, I don't know if I have numbers for that, but you know, there's so many indie artists. Yes. And um, well, DistroKids claims that they have 35% of all songs that are distributed to the DSPs, uh, 35%. Mm. And there are, and that's just one indie distributor. So you can, yeah. uh, you know, uh, extrapolate from that when there's like, yeah. you know, 30 indie distributors or more um, that, yeah, they're the vast majority of, of the 80,000 songs that are uploaded a day to the DSPs, Spotify, et cetera, are from mm -hmm. indie artists. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think it's just, you know, the, the onus being on an indie artist, a lot of the times the people who are using DistroKid and CD Baby and TuneCore, these are brand new artists that are just trying to figure it out. Yep. And a lot of them don't have the privilege of having a manager yet or a team or good people around them, which is why I like music education and stuff. Is so, or music business education is so crucial and so hard to come by. Yes. Um, but yeah, you're, you're expected to do just about everything. And I know that people talk about that a lot, but I don't think that they uh, talk enough about the royalty collection and the copyright management part yes. of that. Because yes. like, yes, you have to do your own marketing campaign and that's tough, but that's, e I think that's easier for an artist to get their head around versus yeah. like, Hey, did you know that YouTube rights managers exist? I feel like a lot of them don't. Um, yeah. I didn't know. I, I released a few songs in college and I had no idea that YouTube rights management was a thing until very recently. Um, so yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's a lot to keep up with. Um, <laughs> and it, it presents, I think there's a really interesting discussions and debates happening around, um, you know, the way that things are set up right now. I don't have the answers. None of us mm -hmm. do. And people are all taking different sides on it. Some people mm -hmm. uh, have very different approaches to fixing the problem, but mm. um, it, it is what have certainly you been hearing? a problem. What have you been um, hearing to well, some of the approaches? Uh, one of the things I wrote about in the story, uh, Maria Schneider, she's a, a 
Grammy winning jazz artist has yep. been at it for years. Mm-hmm. Um, she sued YouTube um, and said that she felt that um, independent artists weren't given enough access to the tools that they need to monitor their copyrights. And that yes. leaves them in the dark. Um, she believes unfairly and uh, specifically with content ID. She, she said that she really feels like independent artists deserve to have that access. Yes. Um, and so her, her, I think idea of an, a, a fix for this would be to open it up to everyone. Mm. Other people, I, I've heard a lot of people in the rights management space saying there are not that many people who have access to these tools for a reason because they can be easily abused. And so some people are for dating it even tighter than it is now. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I don't really know where I fall in that debate, but I find it very interesting that it's happening. Um, yeah. And it's happening in real time right now. So, yeah. Didn't YouTube counter sue her? Uh, I believe so. There was, think, there was a specific person. Her, yeah. Her company like pirate something or another, they countersued or something and they yeah, and she had okay. to drop out of it because of that. Right. Well, uh, yeah. Pirate monitor was the name. Uh, so she, she originally filed this lawsuit along with another company called pirate monitor and mm-hmm. um, YouTube countersued pirate monitor um, saying, wow. uh, I actually don't know. I can't remember what they set off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But (laughs) um, anyways, Pyro Monitor ended up dropping out of the suit, but Maria is still going forward with it. Good. Um, Yeah. So it'll be, I'm really fascinated to hear where that one ends up because I think that is a fascinating thought experiment of what what would happen if everyone had the equal access to tools. I mean, Uh look at Wikipedia. You know, it's like, I I think, I think everybody is is um, now granted there's no money flowing in royalties funny there's no money on the line with Wikipedia uh, it's a fairly trustworthy source however as you have firsthand experiences I was stalking your Instagram stories today uh, you got uh, <laughs> Caroline Polichick's height wrong based on a incorrect or somewhat incorrect Wikipedia or whatever you googled that said she was five two and then she had to yeah. clarify she's not five eight or whatever who knows yeah but. <laughs> yeah i couldn't figure out, okay to, to preface for anyone who doesn't follow my instagram stories uh-huh. um i went to a music festival yesterday and i was at the caroline Polichek set and i was standing with a bunch of people who work in the industry and someone was like can you believe that she's only five two she seems really tall and i was like <laughs> she's five two and so i was so surprised by this fact that every single person i walked up to i was like hey by the way did you know she's five two and I just spread this rumor on accident that Caroline Polachek was 5'2". Turns out she is 5'7", I believe. Okay. Sources say. Sources say. Sources say. say. Gotcha. Sources close to Caroline Polachek says she was 5'7". <laughs> um, sure. So anyways, but yeah, it's a... Uh, that, that's all I have to say about Caroline Polchek. It's the internet, you know, <laughs> right. That's right, yeah. sure. Um, so, yeah, no. But, uh, you know, it, I think, um, right, brings up, I'm glad the debate is happening right now. Um, I, I don't have the answers either, but I think it's extremely important uh, that these issues are being brought to light, um, you know, and these stories uh, like this, like the one that you wrote, uh, the one that Elias wrote, uh, and just more stories that are being come to, uh, that are um, being brought to light that highlight how broken the system is, especially for indie artists and how challenging it is for indie artists, not just to market, which is hard enough, um, mm-hmm. but the the royalty collection. And you know, I appreciate that there are more um, advocates and companies in the space uh, that are catering to indie artists um, and indie songwriters uh, because we need advocates and we need companies that have our backs that, that know how all this works. And Mm -hmm. because you can't expect artists uh, to, to figure this out on their own or to do all their own research as much as I would like to believe that everyone has read every word in my book and has (laughs) has digested it to the point where they understand complete copyright and royalty collections to a T I understand that that's not happening and it is, you know, very, very, very convoluted and confusing. And the laws just have not caught up with technology. Like the fact that, you know, uh, the the, the, um, 1998 copyright law, there's still a lot of that still in place right now when like 
copyright law. This was written um, uh, in 1998 in the era of uh, like what was on the internet in 98. Uh, uh, nothing. Not much. Not, 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 much. A, not YouTube, not Spotify. Um, None of that. Yeah the, yeah, the DMCA is really, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is, is very interesting uh, to learn more about. And I encourage if anyone is not super familiar with it to take take a read. It's yep. kind of a dull read as all laws are, but yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's important then... to know how the how the system is set up because this is what we have to work with now. Yes. Um, I You know, things could easily change in the future, but as you we were saying, like laws do move pretty slow and technology yeah. moves pretty fast. So, yeah. yeah. And that's the issue. And like, you know, we, the Music Modernization Act passed a few years ago and we got the mechanical licensing collective out of that, which which helped streamline mechanical royalties, at least in the States, a little bit better. Um, and, uh, you know, there it, it brought a lot more transparency to at least the mechanical royalties, which is uh, one mm -hmm. of the the uh, composition royalties that songwriters and publishers can earn from streams. Um, so that was helpful. But it, it really, it you know, was very watered down because when you make a law, you have to, as I have firsthand experience of getting a law uh, passed, written and passed um, in California with my work with AB5 and, and how we had to go about that. Uh, you have to get every party, essentially, the politicians, the legislators don't want to do anything. They're just like, mm -hmm. y'all figure it out, hand me a bill. And it's really mm -hmm. messed up when you realize like that's actually how uh legislating works in our country um is that like the oh yeah the legislators don't really write shit <laughs> they, yeah, they yeah. it sounds like you probably out. learned a lot from that process it was i i literally i kid you not it was just like oh music industry go figure it out and then you know it was just me and 20 other people that were on there that were in the call like hashing it out and be like oh we should write this we got to say this and we're at button heads and then we handed it over to them and they're like, oh, cool. They signed their name to it, but they didn't write mm. shit. And that's how it works. The same with the MMA, the Music Modernization Act. It's like you had to get Spotify and Apple and the NMPA and the RIA and all the major labels, the publishers and the DSPs and everybody to agree, which is like very, very, yeah. very hard. And uh, that that's why laws take forever to get written yeah. or passed. But yeah, anyway, they they take quite a long time. And I, it really does concern me how many, uh, you know, new platforms that pop up. And, you know, all of them are things that lawmakers can't couldn't have anticipated oh, a couple yeah. decades ago. And so oh, yeah. we have this. That's why our music, like all of our licensing is so bizarre in this industry. Yeah. Like even <laughs> the term mechanicals goes back to like mechanical piano rolls on player, player pianos. pianos. Yeah. Like, that's insane that we're still using that, right. <laughs> but you know, that's just like it, you know, things yeah. mutate really fast and mm -hmm. we just try to apply the relevant law to it and uh, make do with what we have. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, that's what, honestly, what I love about my job as a music business journalist is yes. like, I just get to study and look at these things and get to shed light on things that are important, uh, important trends and changes in the ecosystem that we all yes. have to navigate. Um, and then, you know, maybe hopefully it inspires someone to do something with it. Like, like I was saying before, uh, nothing makes me happier than hearing that a manager figured out how to use, you know, how to navigate YouTube for their artists because of a story that I did. That's awesome. Um, yes. but you know, I just like to tee it up and then <laughs> everyone else can run with that. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Kristen, you're doing great work. Uh, on behalf of the entire independent music community, uh, we appreciate it and um, keep <laughs> it up. You're doing really excellent work. Um, I have one final question that I ask everybody who comes on the show, and that is, what does it mean to you to make it in the new music business? I really think that making it a new music business is just being able to make a living and keep the creative choices that you want to take. I don't think that making it needs to be top of any chart necessarily. Um, a lot of the music that I like listening to is not stuff where I don't think the musicians that I listen to often are millionaires or billionaires. Um, but like to it, 
what a dream to be able to make the music you want to make and have people that respond to that and, you know, just get to live a a nice life. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that to tie it back in with what we've been talking about, the, the dream, like making it in the music business, I think is having good access to uh, education and tools so that you can have that living. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a million dollars a year, but if you can make, you know, 65 grand a year on royalties on various platforms because you figured out how to how to do that. That's amazing. That's really cool. Um, so I think that that's what making it should be. Kristen Robinson, thank you so much. That was great. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Today's episode was edited by Maxton Hunter, theme music by Brassroots District, and produced by all the great people at Ari's Take. This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a distribution service that can get your music into all the DSPs like Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram. Over a million artists have used DistroKid. I'm one of those artists. I've used DistroKid to get my music out, distribute some of my songs. As you know, as I look into all of these distribution services, I test them out. And DistroKid is great. They offer a ton of features, annual fee unlimited uploads and you keep a hundred percent of your royalties check out districtkid.com <laughs>